quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Out front next, polls about to close in the state of Michigan. A crucial test in the key battleground state for both Trump and Biden. John King is out front at the magic wall. Plus, Team Trump's star witness fails to deliver today, now saying he can't recall when Georgia DA Fonnie Willis began her relationship with her top prosecutor in the Trump case. Did he just help Willis stay on that Trump case? And a top Olympic fencer from Russia speaking out after defecting from his country, slamming Putin for the war in Ukraine. He'll be my guest tonight. Let's go out front. And good evening, I'm Erin Burnett. Out front tonight, the breaking news, a mystery in Michigan tonight. Polls are just about to close in the crucial swing state, one of just a handful of states that will determine the outcome of the 2024 election. And when it comes to the Republican primary tonight, there's little polling to show where voters stand. When it comes to Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, neither one has spent much time in the state. Nikki Haley only hit the ground on Sunday after South Carolina. Her campaign only started running television ads in the state last week. As for Trump, he's not even there tonight. He's actually planning just to call in to a GOP victory party. And on the Democratic side, Biden tonight facing an unprecedented uproar over his support for Israel. Biden, the target of a massive campaign urging Democratic Arab Americans and Muslims to cast protest votes against the president tonight. Images like the ones we're about to show you have caused outrage and pain in those communities. People struggling to survive. One of Gaza's only functioning hospitals. Hospital staff calls a, quote, death zone now. People digging with their bare hands in neighborhood after neighborhood, looking for dead children after airstrikes. Well, organizers of tonight's protest vote in Michigan are hoping it sends a message to Biden that he must change course. And the reality is that Michigan is a must win in November. Biden won the state by just over 150,000 votes in 2020. And Arab Americans were a big part of that. They turned out overwhelmingly for him. In fact, he won by nearly 70 percent in Michigan's most heavily Arab-American communities. And that community is expected to play an even more significant role in 2024. They now make up the majority of residents in the entire city of Dearborn, which is one of the largest cities in the entire state of Michigan. The state's total Middle Eastern population is now over 300,000, twice the margin of victory last time. And in a moment, I'm going to speak to John King about what he is watching tonight uh, in this uh, crucial primary in terms of what it will reveal for both Democrats and Republicans. I want to go first to the ground to Omar Jimenez, who is out front live at a polling station in Waterford, Michigan. And Omar, I know you've been there. You've been talking to people coming in, uh, casting their vote all day. What are they telling you? Yeah, we've heard a wide range of opinions from a wide range of people. In short, Trump supporters, many of them have said that immigration and the economy are tops of minds for them, while Biden supporters have said the economy and human decency in the White House has been top of mind for them. Then we've heard a few more nuanced opinions. We spoke to one person who actually voted for Marianne Williamson, who announced she was suspending her campaign earlier this month. But really, this was someone who said he previously voted for 
support Joe Biden in 2020, but because of his handling of the Israel-Hamas war, he couldn't bring himself to vote for him again. Now, of course, that message has been the central theme of what we have seen be a major push in this state, uh, led by Arab American uh, activists, and uh, as we know, to vote uncommitted over his handling of what has happened with Israel uh, and Gaza and Hamas. Now, as you mentioned before coming to me, this state here in Michigan has the largest Arab American population of any state in the entire country, no doubt a crucial voting block when we get to the general election. But I want you to take a listen to one Biden supporter we spoke to. Even though this has been billed as not an anti-Biden vote, it has been billed as a protest vote, this voter, this Biden voter, didn't necessarily agree with voting uncommitted because he saw the alternative to Joe Biden as much worse. Take a listen. A lot of people that are opposing him over this uncommitted, they're forgetting about the, the Muslim ban. When the women were, were at the airport wanting to visit their families and they were banned from the country. They've totally forgotten about that. And if he gets back in there and he doesn't have to worry about any voters, imagine what they're, he's going to do to them. And he's, of course, talking about that 2017 temporary travel ban uh, that Trump instituted on seven majority Muslim countries. But obviously it is a dynamic not just to watch here in the primary, but of course it indicates where support may or may not be heading into the general election. Another dynamic we've watched for today is, look, you may notice it's not exactly uh, packed behind me right now, but that doesn't mean people haven't been voting. We saw over a million people vote either early or absentee prior to getting here today, and that, of course, uh, has been a major victory for a lot of uh, voting organizers here. All right, Omar, thank you very much. And I want to go now to John King at the Magic Wall. So, John, the results obviously may not be the big story tonight in terms of who the winner is, but what is beneath that certainly will say a lot. What are you looking for on the Republican side of things? We slide this out of the way, Aaron, we'll get to it. Number one, if you look at the map right now, it's Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, right? He's 4-0 in the States, 5-0 if you had in the Virgin Islands. So if you're Nikki Haley, who could be gone from the race a week from tonight after Super Tuesday, you are looking for some proof that Republican voters are listening to you when you say, hey, wake up, we have to stop this. And so will it come in Michigan tonight? Uh, number one, 55 delegates at stake. Number two, be careful about that. Most of the delegates, a state convention decides where the delegates go. It will be influenced for at least 16 of those delegates by the primary results tonight, but it's not necessarily beholden to the primary results tonight. And Trump has the state party pretty wired. But what do you look for? So let's go back to 2016 in the Republican primary. Let's cut 2016, not 2012. There we go. Uh, 2012 was interesting too, though. Trump won Michigan. Where do you see the Ted Cruz? You see some Ted Cruz and John Kasich in the suburban areas. That's the what you look for tonight. Look, Erin, the math has been pretty clear for Nikki Haley for some time. She says she needs to stay in to try to rattle the party to rally around her. Uh, Michigan gives her an opportunity. We'll be looking in the suburbs. I wouldn't run to Vegas and place a bet on that. But as you watch the vote come in tonight, is there any evidence in Michigan tonight that after these four contests, Republican voters are saying, you know, she's right. We need to give her a boost. If she doesn't get it in Michigan tonight, as I said, next Tuesday night could be the last hurrah. So that's the Republican side. Now, on the Democratic side, right, as you've, Omar was just laying out, uh, you've got more Arab Americans in Michigan than any other state. This so-called protest vote as that is being billed is, could be very significant for Biden, right? And it's called technically, I know, uncommitted in terms of the box you check in Michigan. What are you watching there? 
How big is the uncommitted vote? And then how do we understand? There's a history of voting uncommitted in the Democratic primary in Michigan, so let's not overstate this. At the same time, you mentioned at the top of the show, Joe Biden won by 154,000 votes last time. That's why I have the 2020 map up here, right? 300,000 people of Middle Eastern descent, 200,000 or so of them Muslims in Michigan. Most of them live, many of them live in Dearborn, a Detroit suburb out here. But it's not just the Arab Americans, Aaron. We were in Michigan several weeks ago. Arab Americans say, Mr. President, we are going to vote against you. They're threatening to vote against him, not only in this primary, but in November as well, if the policy doesn't change. And guess what? The Israeli-Gaza conflict has also caused the president a giant problem with younger voters. Listen. You know, Mr. President, I've seen you take key humanitarian steps, but I think the next step is a ceasefire. And I, I think that that would go a long way with voters. Muslims all across this country voted for Biden because we were, and not in a million years would I like to vote for Trump, um, but coming around this year, um, I don't know if I'm voting at all, uh, but I definitely will not be voting for Biden. I was just gonna say, you feel this way. To an extent, yes. Now, well, tell me why. Well, I don't know if the camera saw that, but it says abandon Biden. I feel as though President Biden doesn't value my life as a Muslim American um, as much as he values other lives. And I think that's why I feel that way. And so Aaron Ibrahim told our team today he did vote in the primary and he voted uncommitted. He is not completely foreclosing voting for the president in November, but he said he would need to see a giant policy shift. And so that's the issue when it comes to the math. Of the battleground states, this was actually a pretty good one for Joe Biden, 154,000 votes. But come November, he needs to be worrying about Nikki Haley supporters in the suburbs, trying to win them over. He needs to be competing with Donald Trump for the auto workers in Detroit and the suburbs around Detroit. He does not, if he is competing for Muslim American, Arab American votes come October, young voters come October, then he's in trouble. Right, right. That's focusing on a place you shouldn't have to focus, I guess, is how yeah. they would see it in the Democratic Party. So what does tonight tell us about that, about how November shapes up? I would be careful about tonight because it is a primary where we know Trump is well ahead and Biden is well ahead. So it's hard to project all the way to November, except for on that question of Democratic enthusiasm, I think is very important. Because one of the issues you look at is where we are now, right? What, does, what do we know coming into tonight? That this is a very different race than 2020, that the president is in trouble in many of those states that were key to his victory, including the state of Michigan. A poll just this month by Fox, Trump 42, Biden 37. Noteworthy, both candidates are so low. A lot of people don't like either of this. They don't, just don't like this choice. But in the battleground states, Michigan, he's losing. Georgia, he's losing. Pennsylvania, it's tied. Wisconsin, it's tied. So if you look at the math, Michigan has a Democratic governor. Biden won it pretty comfortably, actually, by battleground state standards four years ago. If he is struggling here, it signals he's got very broad troubles. All right, John King, thank you very much. As we await those results, I want to go now to the highest-ranking Muslim lawmaker in Michigan, the Democratic State House Majority Leader, Abraham Ayash. He is the first Arab American to be a majority leader in a state legislature. And I very much appreciate your time, leader. So I know you're urging Democrats to vote uncommitted. Uh, that's the box. You just heard a voter there telling John King he had checked, right, that that's the box uh, to check for uh, to protest Biden's uh, Biden in this case. Now, there are always uncommitted votes in the primaries in Michigan. As John pointed out, it's been about 20,000 votes in each of the past three Democratic cycles. So with that context, what are you hoping to accomplish tonight? Look, President Biden has been one of the most consequential presidents in modern American history as it relates to the domestic policy. But what we've seen over the last four months 
uh, is nothing ta uh, less than an abject moral failure in terms of dignifying the humanity of the Palestinians. And what we're seeing in Michigan is a groundswell of support of people that are anti-war and people that want this country to lead with moral clarity and want our president to not support uh, a, an, an administration in Israel that has killed nearly 30,000 innocent men, women, and children. So tonight's uh, results will be a reflection of that frustration, and folks are going to come out and demand better for our government and for our democracy through the best way possible, which is our vote. So have you heard today from the president or anyone on his team about your efforts to, to vote against him in the primary tonight? No, and I want to be clear, this is not a vote against the president, but this is a vote for reaffirming that the United States should stand on the principles of human rights, on dignifying Palestinians, and that we are not going to be a country that greenlights the innocent, uh, the, the killing of innocent men, women, and children that yeah. we've seen the Netanyahu regime has done over the last four months, and it's unacceptable. Does the a ceasefire, while it would be crucial, is that something that does it for you, or is that, in a sense, checking the box? I mean, Gaza's still leveled. Uh, people are, are, there's been an incredible amount of death and destruction, and does a ceasefire do it for you? Well, when we met with the White House uh, a couple weeks ago, our demands were very clear. We need to see a permanent ceasefire. We want to see uh, the, the flow of humanitarian aid and the reconstruction of Gaza. And finally, setting conditions and restrictions on the aid to Israel. It does not make sense that we speak about human rights and we, the way we talk about the Ukrainian people and their right to self-determination and their right to safety and security, yet in the same vein, we are funding an Israeli government that does not seem to have any regard for the humanity of the Palestinians. And I think this message is a way to emphasize that we do not want to see this hypocrisy from our leadership, but rather we want to see that moral clarity in the foreign policy that we unfortunately have not seen yet. So if you don't see all of those things, uh, or you're not comfortable with this as time goes on in November, at this point, obviously it seems that your choices are gonna be uh, Biden or Trump for the, for the Democrats and the Republicans. Obviously you, you could go another route, but those would be, that'll be the Democratic and Republican choice as it looks right now. And obviously, Abraham, you're aware of this, but I wanna remind everybody watching about some of the things Trump has said about the Muslim community. Unfortunately, at this moment in time, there is a Muslim problem in the world. There were people that were cheering in the other side of New Jersey, where you have large Arab populations. They were cheering as the World Trade Center came down. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. I think Islam hates us. When I return to office, the travel ban is coming back even bigger than before and much stronger than before. Obviously, that was over a 10-year period, but that last comment was last summer, right? That the Muslim ban is going to come back even bigger than before if he wins again. Uh, those are just a small sampling of the things that you're well aware that Trump has said over the years. If this ends up in a situation where Muslims in Michigan do not show up for Biden, right, uh, even if they don't vote for Trump, they, they, they stay home, right? Something happens uh, either way. That means that Biden could lose the state. He could lose the election. Are you okay with that outcome, Abraham? There is no doubt that Donald Trump is a threat to the American Republic, is a threat to the idea of democracy, and no one is arguing against that. But I think the question that we have to ask ourselves and to ask President Biden is the voters have done everything they have been told they're supposed to do. They go out, they protest, they lobby their elected officials, they ask for our government to do better. That is inherently democratic. 
And when we see our leaders not act and react and heed the call of the public, the question then becomes, what is President Biden willing to do to protect and save democracy from Donald Trump? It is not the question that we should be asking uh, the, the voters. When I run for office, Aaron, I don't get mad at people when I lose my election or when people don't resonate with, with my message. I go back and ask myself, what could I have done better to campaign? And what platform and what vision did I not present that should have inspired people? So the question that we need to be asking is that to, to President Biden, and he still has time to change course. You know, the, 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 tonight's mm -hmm. vote is a way to demonstrate for the president that he can change course and continue to save lives. The, the vote for uncommitted is a vote to save the innocent men, women, and children that are still alive, that Netanyahu is hell-bent on killing. So, and I, I, I want to close with this, Aaron. My uncle was killed three days before Trump signed the travel ban. He was in Yemen, was killed in an airstrike, and we had applied to bring him into the United States 10 years prior to that point. So I know the deep pain and the deep impact that Donald Trump's policies have inflicted on our communities. But the question has to be to Joe Biden. What is he willing to do to save democracy? Okay. Our position has been very clear. All right. Abraham, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. As the votes, of course, continue and polls are getting ready to close. Next, a star witness for Trump's legal team. Today on the witness stand, and it was a flop. Did he actually help save Fonnie Willis? Plus, our Fred Pleiken reporting from the streets of Iran, where they are still chanting death to America, as citizens are about to vote in an election there that could send a big message to the U.S. And a lot of people are not happy with Wendy's plan to make you pay more during lunch rush. But is Wendy's actually just really late to the party when it comes to surge pricing? This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, Team Trump's star witness flops. The one person that Trump allies wanted to get on the witness stand, the person that they thought would prove that the Fulton County DA, Bonnie Willis's affair with her top prosecutor, Nathan Wade, in the Trump case, began before she hired him for the Trump case, didn't deliver today. Wade's divorce attorney wavering again and again on when the affair began. This has been part of efforts by Trump and his co-defendants to get Bonnie Willis disqualified from the case. They have claimed that she misused public funds while carrying out a relationship with Wade. 
Now, those claims are threatening to delay or altogether end Willis's prosecution of Trump. Nick Valencia begins our coverage tonight out front. Why in the heck would you speculate in this text message? Tonight, Terrence Bradley back on the stand after the judge determined he couldn't invoke attorney-client privilege. He claimed at the time it was privilege. I found that it's not. Bradley, Nathan Wade's former law partner, was billed by the defense as the star witness who would provide proof that Wade and the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, lied about when the romantic relationship started. Bradley testifying he was just speculating in text messages to a defense attorney where he said the two absolutely were dating before he was hired. Did you lie to Miss Merchant when you told her facts about Mr. Wade and Miss Willis's relationship? Not that I recall. I don't recall ever um, whether any of it was a lie or not. The defense trying to determine if Willis hired Wade to lead the Georgia election subversion case when they were already together or after, as both Willis and Wade have testified. What did Nathan Wade tell you about the relationship? I recall him stating that at some point they were dating. Uh, I can't tell you what date that was. It was made in confidence. Willis herself was pressed about the timing at an earlier hearing. When did you start dating? It was right around then. Um, that April 2022? 22. Yes, it was a, around then. I don't know, like, you know, it's not like when you're in grade school and you send a little letter and it says, will you be my girlfriend and you check it. But after today's emergency hearing, there didn't appear to be any smoking gun evidence. Instead, Bradley facing questions about his own credibility. Did you have any reason to lie? I don't know if speculation is lying. The two-hour hearing ending without the damaging testimony defense attorneys had hoped for in their bid to get Willis disqualified and the case against Donald Trump and his allies tossed. Why would you speculate when she was asking you a direct question about when the relationship started and you don't want to testify to that in court? Overall. That's the best explanation. No, I have no direct knowledge of when the relationship started. There's another hearing scheduled for Friday where defense attorneys are expected to introduce cell phone data which they received from a subpoena and they say shows that there was thousands of phone interactions between Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis before they said they started dating. The efforts to disqualify Fonnie Willis and get her removed from this case pick back up Friday at 1 p.m. Aaron. All right, Nick, thank you very much. In Atlanta tonight, I want to go now to Ryan Goodman, our out front legal analyst. And Ryan, you watched Terrence Bradley's testimony today. You were really watching it, I know, throughout the afternoon. So what do you think? Do you think it'll help Fonnie Willis? I certainly think it does not hurt Fonnie Willis. He didn't say anything uh, to contradict Fonnie Willis's or Nathan Wade's testimony. So in that respect, I assume that they have breathed a sigh of relief in a certain sense. Uh, I do think he was, in some sense, uh, not such a great witness that in some ways he may have heard her to some degree because the judge could actually think this person is keeping the information from the court and the reason for him to do that is because it is damaging uh, to Willis and Wade. But that's not very strong. That is not a big win for the defense at all. It was, as you described it, very much of a dud for them and very much of a windfall for uh, Wade and Willis. 
So how does this then play into the other question the judge has, which is whether to decide to admit the cell phone data as evidence? And that's a private investigator who was hired by Team Trump, said that he found Wade's phone a minimum of 35 times uh, it, it connected to an extended period to cell phone towers near Willis's condo, that there were 2,000 voice calls and about 12,000 text messages between Willis and Wade in 2021. That's significant because obviously that's before Willis hired Wade. And it's before uh, when the two have testified under oath that their relationship began, which they said was after he was hired. So uh, that data could be very crucial. Does anything in what we saw today give you a sense of where the judge will go as to whether admit, admitting that evidence happens? I think there high likelihood is that uh, the judge will admit the evidence and then uh, give it the kind of scrutiny that one might think it deserves and give the prosecutors the opportunity to try to rebut it. Uh, today, the judge time and again uh, gave the defense counsel license to ask certain questions, license to even ask questions that are already being asked. Each time he was giving them an opportunity to try to make their case. So I think the judge might think, look, the cell phone data information looks like it could be very important. It could decide yeah. the outcome. And do you think um, that if so, it's, it could disqualify her if, if, he deems it real. Uh, it's the strange quality of life in a certain sense. I think if it does come in and he deems it real, it won't necessarily disqualify her because it shows a conflict of interest, but it could just very easily disqualify her because it would then show that she and Nathan Wade lied to the court. It would directly contradict their testimony. I think that's the problem for them. All right, Ryan, thank you very much. And next, an Olympic fencer from Russia gave it all up, defecting to the United States. Tonight, taking on the Russian president head-on, he's out front. Plus, our Fred Plykin with a rare look inside Iran, where voters are anxious to send a warning to the United States that they are ready to take it on. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, warning shot from the Kremlin. Putin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov telling Western nations not to send troops to Ukraine unless they want all-out war with Russia. This after the French president, Emmanuel Macron, said the possibility, quote, cannot be ruled out. The tension coming as a former Russian Olympic fencer who defected from his country over Putin's invasion is bravely speaking out tonight here out front. Konstantin Lokhanov left Russia the night before the war broke out. Didn't know about the war, obviously. It happened that night. He never went back outraged by what Russia was doing to its neighboring country. That decision cost him his marriage. It cost him his country. It's not safe for him to return to visit. He now is living in the United States, trying to obtain citizenship to compete for a chance to represent America in the 2024 Summer Olympics. Out front now, Konstantin Lokhanov. And Konstantin, I am so glad to have the opportunity to speak with you. You know, as you and I are talking tonight, a human rights activist uh, in, in Russia was jailed. The Russian-American ballerina is in jail now on a treason charge. Alexei Navalny, Putin's top foe, of course, is dead. And yet, Konstantin, you are speaking to me tonight. 
how much risk are you taking on by continuing to speak out for what you believe in? First of all, thanks for the invitation. And uh, I hope I'm not that big enemy as Alexei Navalny, but I think I just need to be careful, but I don't see the point to being scared because it's exactly what they want us to. They want us to be scared and just don't share our opinion. And I just don't want to let them what they want to, and I want to just share my thoughts as it is. And so you, you speak out, and you continue to speak out, Konstantin. When you left, uh, you happened to be out of the country the day before the war started, and you didn't go back because you chose uh, to, to, to not go. You, you, you chose this path. It has come, though, at great personal cost to you. Your wife wouldn't leave Russia. I know you had to get divorced. Uh, you've lost your wife. You've lost your country. What has this been like for you? It was a hard time, but I wouldn't say it was the hard to make that decision because, like, it took me, like, one day to decide that I don't want to go back anymore just because I don't want to be a part of that. The thing that I left there is more about just the cost to being free and being open to talk, being open to live the life that I want to. And uh, here's my choice. So I decided that I can pay that cost. For me, the like, life valuables are more important. Constantine, you know, you say it took you just one day to, to make the decision uh, that it was easy in that sense. But obviously there are so many for whom it was not easy, right? Even many who stay who are still torn or, or don't know. But, but you were able to make a, a choice so quickly. What was it that made it so easy for you? I think because, like, uh, my athlete career, like I traveled a lot and I saw the world. I pretty much knew how the people living in different countries. And also like my cultural um, sense, my life valuables, they're more American than Russian. And I think that's the one of the main differences is that like I was pro-American, pro-European as my like mind sat even before the war started. And, you know, Constantine, the last Olympics, uh, as we're getting ready for the Olympics this summer, we're in Beijing, and it was literally in the days before the war began, and everybody was watching Putin. It's been almost, uh, or it's been two years now since that moment. How much further do you think Putin is willing to go, Constantine? I have no idea, unfortunately. We always thinking that he cannot go further, but we saw what happened like nine days from now. Uh, they murdered Navalny. Like everyone's thing is like, you know, like the next level is impossible. But here we are. And Constantine, you are an Olympic level fencer. I know you're trying to get U.S. citizenship in time to have a chance to compete for a spot on the U.S. Olympic fencing team this summer. Given everything that you've been through, what would it mean to you to have the opportunity to complete, compete in the Olympics for the U.S.? It would be honor for me because uh, I already said that like my like life mindset, it's very American and I'm feeling home 
when I'm in America, and it would be honor for me to, in the best way, to stand like on the podium and with an American flag around me. I just dream that it might happen. Well, Constantine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight. I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, also tonight, the U.S. is ramping up pressure on Iran to stop providing weapons, including long-range missiles, to Putin, announcing fresh sanctions against Iran. It comes as tension between the U.S. and Iran is rising, as Iranians are now preparing to vote in a high-stakes election. Our Fred Pleiken is in Tehran with a story that you will see first out front. Iranian conservatives with a show of force ahead of what many say will be a key election on Friday, supporting their leadership's tough stance against both the U.S. and Israel. His sons Isan and Hossein, dressed up in military fatigues, voter Mohammed Kalantari says he wants to show the U.S. Iran's strength. They know that Iran is a powder keg, he says. It only takes a spark to blow up the entire region. Iranian youth, me and the children, are wearing these clothes to say that we are the soldiers of this country. And this man says, through this election we will prove that we can stand against the U.S. not only economically but militarily. They are sanctioning us, but this will be solved soon and then we will be a country sanctioning them. Tension between the U.S. and Iran has reached a boiling point as Washington accuses Tehran of supporting Houthis in Yemen firing missiles at cargo ships, as well as pro-Iranian militias in Iraq and Syria targeting U.S. bases there, including the January 28th attack killing three U.S. service members and wounding dozens. Iran denies any involvement, but has ripped into the U.S. for Washington's support of Israel and its campaign against Hamas in Gaza. At the conservative event, disdain for Israel on full display. Flags with the Star of David on the floor for people to step on. It certainly seems pretty clear how most of the people at this rally are going to vote in the upcoming parliamentary elections, but this event is really about something else. It's about getting out the vote. In fact, the supreme leader of this country has urged people to head to the ballot boxes to make sure there will be a high turnout. It's the first election since massive protests erupted in Iran in late 2022 following the death of Masa Amini after she was detained for violating hijab laws. On the streets of Tehran, get out the vote posters nearly everywhere. But with many moderate candidates barred from running, inflation high and the economy reeling from tough U.S.-led sanctions, some say they feel unenthusiastic when we ask if they will vote. No. No, no. The country belongs to the people, this man says. There should be participation in the elections. But it should be freer with the presence of all groups and minorities. It's unclear if Iran's leaders can persuade more people to vote in an election deemed pivotal for the country's future. And Aaron, the leadership here is certainly trying to put on a full court press to get people to go to the polls and vote. We're speaking a little bit about the candidates that were not allowed to run in this election. Well, some 15,000 are actually competing for the 290 seats in parliament. And again, the Supreme Leader himself also coming out and urging people to go to the polls. Aaron. All right, Fred, thank you very much in Tehran tonight. And out front next, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s campaign has secured enough uh, votes to qualify for the ballot in Arizona and Georgia. This could be crucial. Could it make him a serious spoiler in November? And Wendy's joining the likes of Uber and airlines, which all use surge pricing, is paying more during peak times the new normal. 
We are just moments away from many of the polls closing in Michigan for tonight's crucial primaries. This is a pro-Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Super PAC just announced that it has enough signatures for him to qualify for the ballot in both Arizona and Georgia. Now, Biden won Arizona by just over 10,000 votes and Georgia, of course, by 11,779 votes. A third party candidate could upend the entire election because Arizona and Georgia are two of the six closely watched swing states that could determine the outcome in November. Up front now, Van Jones, the former special advisor to President Obama and longtime Republican pollster Ed Goas. And thanks so much to both of you. I appreciate your time. Van, 10,000 votes uh, in either of those states could turn the entire election. The New York Times Siena uh, college poll from the fall in Arizona has Kennedy with 26 percent support. Biden and Trump a little bit ahead, but not much. Thirty three percent each. Just to make the point, RFK Jr. could do a lot better than 10,000 votes in those two states. He, he, he can, and it is, uh, if, if you understand basic math, uh, this is a shockwave through uh, the Democratic Party uh, because uh, it, 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 it takes a lot less than the pr- amount of support he's got, especially among young people, to throw this whole thing uh, to Biden. And we can lose some states, but we can't lose many. Uh, and so uh, it's, we, we're, we're going to have a, a tough enough time uh, in Georgia. We're going to have a tough enough time in Arizona anyway. Uh, but this is a big deal. This is a very big deal. And um, uh, th- th- I think for me, my heart breaks. I, I know uh, RFK Jr. In fact, he uh, endorsed uh, and wrote the forward for my first book, yep. <laughs> very close <laughs> to his uh, uh, sister, uh, Carrie. Uh, he was an environmental champion hero of mine for a very long time. But if you don't have a pathway to win the White House, and I don't think that he's going to be on enough uh, ballots to win the White House, then you shouldn't be doing this. Uh, because you can only hurt um, uh, Joe Biden and uh, hand the country, country over to Donald Trump. So, Ed, from all the data you see and the voters you're speaking to, who does RFK Jr. hurt the most in these? Uh, let's, let's stick uh, with Arizona and Georgia right now. Biden or Trump? Well, clearly it comes, uh, comes from Biden, uh, but it, it does offset, is offset a little bit by the fact that there are many Republicans that are planning on staying at home and not voting for Trump. So the math is a little bit different than what you would traditionally look at. Um, Biden needs all those Democrats to turn out. But at this point, it looks like Biden will get more of the Democrats to turn out, even with a three, a third party race, uh, than, than Trump will in terms of the Republicans. So, which is which is crucial context here. And of course, RFK Jr. says he wants to get on the ballot in all 50 states, Van. Uh, we'll, we'll see about that. I know you're skeptical. Uh, but Michigan is one that RFK Jr. is looking to get on the ballot next. That's where they're focusing. And Michigan, of course, has those primaries tonight. What are you looking at to gauge Biden's strength there? And obviously that was, a, as John King said, as far as a swing state goes, very comfortable victory for Biden last time around. Uh, but uh, David Oxford <coughs> was saying last night, uh, it appears it will be much closer this time. Sure. I mean, uh, Michigan's going to be tougher uh, because you got a bunch of constituencies that we need that right now are grumpy, uh, to say the least. Uh, the big Muslim uh, community there uh, in, in Michigan, they are not happy with the way that Joe Biden has been handling the situation in Gaza. And right. you also have a lot of young people of color, especially African-Americans and some African-American men that are just frustrated in general uh, with the state of things. Um, and so you've got to you've got a very short period of time to get those two groups back on board. Don't forget, uh, Donald Trump has won in Michigan before. He won in Michigan in 2016. Uh, he lost uh, Michigan in 2020, uh, 2024. It is possible that he could win again. So 
Uh, you know, I, my thing with RFK is, again, uh, he's going to the places that are the swing states uh, that are going to be the margins of, of victory uh, for either candidate. Um, and that is, it's, but his math right now, he is not on track to be in enough states to actually win the presidency. He's just on track to be in enough states to cost uh, Joe Biden the presidency. So, Ed, I want to play part of Seth Meyers last night. He did an interview with Joe Biden. And Joe Biden mm-hmm. was trying to take on the, the central issue that is facing him in poll after poll, uh, age, and try to turn it against Donald Trump. Here's what he did. Number one, you got to take a look at the other guy. He's about as old as I am, but he can't remember his wife's name. Yeah. And, uh, number one. Number two, <laughs> it's about how old your ideas are. Look, I mean... This is a guy who wants to take us back. He wants to take us back on Roe v. Wade. He wants to take us back on a whole range of issues that are 50, 60 years. They've been solid American positions. And he's referring to Trump, referring to his wife as Mercedes, it appears, as opposed to Melania. I guess that was the first reference. (laughs) Does this strategy work? Going on a late night show and, and taking the age issue head on in a joking way, but then trying to do it seriously. Does that work? Well, it cer- certainly works if you get a lot of people laughing at it and laughing at the other candidate. It also, I think, showed him to be a little bit more on his toes than some people think he is. And I think that is very, very helpful in the process. Um, but, you know, his his weakness in this campaign, if there's any argument uh, that will carry the most weight with the centrist voters out there, it's a question of, will he last the next four years, and do you really want her to be the next president? That's going to be the thing used against him on age, not just his age, and uh, probably the more, more direct. So the more he can kind of show some real spunkiness, I think it is good. Um, I have always felt he is not as bad as what is portrayed out there in terms of his age. He may walk like an old man. I don't know that he thinks like an old man. Um, and I think he has an opportunity to prove that in the next election. All right. Well, both of you, thank you so very much. Uh, and Ed, I want everyone to know you're also the author of Question of Respect, Bringing Us Together in a Deeply Divided Nation, something we all hope we'll see more of. Thanks to both of you. And thank next, you. Wendy's wants to charge you more for a burger at lunchtime. So is that about to be the new normal? When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 